This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show. You can listen to Politics Without the Boring Bits Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times radio app. Coming up on today's episode, we rewind the clock 30 years. 30 years ago, John Major delivered his back-to-basic speech designed to draw a line under lots of Tory sleeves. The old values, neighbourliness decency, courtesy, they're still alive. They're still the best of Britain. They haven't changed. And yet somehow people feel embarrassed by them. Didn't really work out like that. We'll find out what went wrong. Any parallels with today, including hearing from Howell James, the political secretary to John Major when he was in Down Street. In a moment, we'll have Indian Knight and James Marriott. But now, well, normally we take a look at what we learned this week. But on Thursday night, the Westminster Correspondents' Dinner took place in Westminster. It's like the White House one, but slightly less fancy. Rishi Sunak does jokes, apparently. So... Today, let's take a look at what we learned from Rishi Sunak's stand-up routine. We learned that Rishi Sunak is not looking forward to a Tory party conference karaoke. Now, I've heard, I've heard on the grapevine that Nadine and Boris are doing nothing compared to you. <laughs> Liz Truss is apparently covering Shaggy's It Wasn't Me. <laughs> and I, I, will be, I will be performing Elton John's classic, Tiny Dancer. It's a classic. We learned that he is really enjoying the Lettuce's comeback. And I'm glad to see, actually, that Liz Truss has been quietly reflecting. <laughs> not, not, not least on who's to blame. <laughs> HMT. Of course, OBR, B of E, IMF, HMV, DFS, ACDC. In fact, I can't think of an acronym in British public life that hasn't yet been blamed, except perhaps the IEA. Yeah, the Institute for Economic Affairs, of course. Uh, we also learned that even he's got bored of ITV's political editor. Even I couldn't get away with making a speech shorter than one of Robert Peston's questions. We learned that, yes, Keir Starmer is from London. In fact, he 
he's so out of touch. He thinks the Angel of the North is a tube stop in Islington. <laughs> and we learned that after seven bins and meat taxis, other things are safe too. The ban on Christmas. I've scrapped it. <laughs> the plan for pubs to open just an hour a day. I've scrapped it. The ban on Strictly. I've scrapped it. And of course, the ban on puppies. I've scrapped that too. <laughs> That's what we learned from Rishi Sunak's jokes. Right, now it's time for these two. The Columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio. Oh, it's not the one... Is it finally have you over? Been, have you, no, it's absolutely not. No. Have, you been, have you been tampering with the machine? I think that, that we've all accepted the jokes got old. We can move on and leave no, my humiliation no, no, in no. the past. The joke is fresh. Yeah, it just, I think it's good. It just keeps coming back. Have we got it? I was hunched on my bedroom oh. floor with my laptop frantically <laughs> battering away at my column. Oh, thank goodness. I, f- I feel like... like I thought I was finally free. I thought you'd finally decided to stop bullying me and I was, we we're going to move whoa, on whoa, to whoa, 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 whoa. friendlier we're not phase of this We're not bullying show. here. It's all part of including you in the family. <laughs> including me in the... <laughs> <laughs> that was a good snort oh, there as well. Yeah, I was snorting as well. I was just embarrassing myself on, like, on radio in every single way. How are you, India? I'm very well, thank you, Matt. How are you? Yeah, very good. How's your Substack doing? It's doing really well. It's weird. It's great. It's doing be- much better than I anticipated, and that brings a certain amount of pressure, but it's great. Do I'm know, loving it. Do you know what I like about it? What? Mo- most Substacks that I've signed up to are all dribbling on about politics and what they think about things, and basically the columns that nobody else wants to run. And yours is like, here's some lovely fairy lights. And I was like, yeah, yes. I agree. I'm, I'm a subscriber. Yeah. That's very kind. Thank you. Nice things. Nice things. Nice things. things. Nice things. Nice things to celebrate. Nice things, exactly. So there we are. You can find India's Substack wherever you get your Substack. I don't really understand. On Substack. Indianite.substack.com. There we are. Well, uh, she's time. really professional at this now. Yeah, exactly. I am. Uh, very good. Right. Uh, let's talk about cars. Uh, Rishi Sunak is said to be planning to uh, block councils from introducing 20 mile per hour speed restrictions and imposing fines on motorists. It's all part of, apparently, rowing back the war on motorists. Uh, but is there really a war on motorists, or is it just is it a straw man, James? To me, it always seems like one of those slightly kind of made-up culture war issues to invent a division that I'm not sure necessarily exists, although I am speaking from the perspective of a metropolitan non-motorist, so perhaps one of those people who is on the wrong side of this culture war. But, you know, I think when you look into it, you know, this... I don't think motorists are an oppressed minority. You know, they're richer. We know that the richer people are, the more likely they are to drive further. I, I kind of find this idea that this oppressed minority a slightly difficult thing to buy, I think. Uh, what do you think, India? I mean, are, yeah. are they, I mean, it's obviously all born out of what happened in uh, Uxbridge, where the Tories feel that they, they hung on to that uh, Boris Johnson's old seat because mm. of the ULES. They've really weaponised the 20-mile-per-hour thing in uh, in Wales. I think more people now have signed the petition than live in Wales, possibly. Um, so they, they clearly think that there's, uh, that, that there's, there's sort of, you know, there's um, legs in this. Yeah, I agree with James. I think it's a, I think it's a kind of manufactured thing. Um, I think that, I mean, it's exasperating trying to get around London at 20 miles an hour or less, you know, it's crawling along. But it's necessary, and I understand why it's happened. Now, you know, a, a black cab driver or an Uber driver might feel differently. Um, but 
because everybody has them and they are not good. They are, if you have, if you care about the environment, you know, millions of cars whizzing around emitting whatever they're emitting is not a great idea. So it's a kind of difficult thing. But but basically, I think this is a kind of the idea that there's a war on motorists is um, manufactured. It's also what do you think? I'm interested in what you think. Well, I mean, part I I think the risk with these things is that uh, so far into a conservative government, it's if you're if you're vowing to end the war on motorists, then there's only one person person or party who started (laughs) the war. Yeah, yeah. It's this weird oppositional tone to take. Yeah, fourteen years into. Um, and so, government. Uh, and, and actually, and actually, the, you know, vowing to block councils from introducing 20 mile per hour speed restrictions, that feels a little bit like I've banned, blocked seven bins and blocked meat, mm. meat ta- you know. The, yeah. There is no plan to introduce 20 mile per hour speed limits across the UK, across England like they have in Wales, because that's his government's policy. It's yeah. kind of like this sort of, I wonder if it's like a self-perpetuating style of doing politics that stems from when all the statue stuff kicked off. Well, yeah, a few yeah. years ago, and every single, mm. you know, if you feel like you can turn every single thing into a culture war, and I don't really know that cars count as a culture war, if you can just perpetuate this kind of us versus them oppositional style politics, maybe they're just kind of thinking they can keep bringing success out of this way of doing things that, you know, was happening with statues and oh, I don't know what other stuff was going on when the culture wars kind of kicked off a few years ago. And you just think you can fit everything into this paradigm, maybe that's the way to do things. The other thing that's slightly... Because the whole point of the 20-mile-per-hour zones introduced by councils, they can put them outside schools mm. or shopping centres. Mm. I mean, it's quite... I mean, there is a risk that if he intervenes... You know, the council says we want to make 20 miles per hour outside this school, and somehow the government stops them doing that, and then somebody got run over. I mean, it's yeah. you know, there's a reason why. Yeah, it's not like they're doing kind of motorways or important yeah. A-roads or anything like that. And I think, I don't know, doesn't everyone just think that... More pedestrians and fewer cars are just a nicer, just happier a place idea. to be. Yeah. I, I wonder how many people would really disagree with that. A cap on the number of hours a day that cars are banned from bus lanes could also be introduced. I mean, we're, I mean, we're, we're one step away from a Cones hotline. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, where John Major said, basically, he was in his car, wasn't he? He got annoyed that there was a lot of traffic cones on the motorway. So he set up a hotline so you could ring in and say... This is obviously before your time, James. It is before my time. It, do- it doesn't feel like a government fizzing with exciting new ideas to make everything better, does it? Possibly not. But it's all right because uh, multiculturalism is now in in the uh, in the <laughs> in their sights. Oh. Uh, after Suella Barber made her speech in Washington this week, saying multiculturalism was a misguided dogma that had failed. Uh, Rishi Sunak repeatedly denied, declined to say whether he agreed uh, with his own Home Secretary. Um, uh, they both talked about Leicester. The Home Secretary said multiculturalism in Leicester had failed because it made no demands of the incomer to integrate and always uh, and allows people from different nationalities and ethnicities to live parallel lives. Rishi Sunak then said this in response. My mum's from Leicester, so it's a place that I know incredibly well. I have many happy memories there. My family are still there. And I think this is something that's incredible about our country is that it is a fantastic multi-ethnic democracy. What do you think of this, uh, India? I think not very much of this. I'm completely appalled by it, actually. And one of the many things I'm appalled by is that somebody who benefited from multiculturalism to the point where their home secretary of the UK should say should claim it's a, a, a failed thing and use incredibly provocative and violent language to make her point 
Um, I completely disagree with her. I think it was a dreadful thing to say. I think... I also think she was talking about Muslims. She was, you know, she, she, she's talking about certain communities who keep themselves to themselves. Martin Samuels actually has a has written very well about this in um, today's paper, uh, much more persuasively than anything I could say now. But I think the idea that parallel lives aren't are, are a problem in the first place. You know, people in the country live parallel lives to people in the city. People in Emigrants to English people who live in Spain live a parallel life to Spanish people, etc., etc., etc. The idea that you have to amalgamate, which, by the way, lots of people do. I'm the product of such an amalgamation. My mother is Pakistani. My father was Belgian. Here we are in the UK. The idea that amalgamation is it doesn't exist. I think they're like, I don't know, a million, I think, mixed race people in the UK. I mean, it's just, I found the whole thing really really offensive certainly there's a conversation to be had about multiculturalism and certainly it's not a topic that should be kind of brushed under the carpet but the ferocity of her argument of her completely flawed argument in my view i found really revolting it's interesting actually i was chatting to uh, uh, a cabinet minister and they were saying look i'm on the right of the party and most of the things that he said, you know, he said, well, I, you know, I would say this, but, you know, lots of people are on the doorstep are quite right wing. And, you know, I, you know, essentially we sort of reflect mm. back to them what they want. But he said they've got to be really careful, this sort of overreaching, the, the, the substance mm. of what uh, sort of Bavan was saying about the definition of refugees was something that actually the last mm. Labour government had looked at in a changing world and greater volatility and movement and all of that. Maybe there is a, an argument for revisiting some of those things. But he said the, the risk is you massively overreach and the siren yeah. voices. And actually, it backfires on me. It's not one of those things that if there are lots of people who are a bit on the right. You don't get even more people if you dial it right up to 11. What no, you actually exactly. do is you lose people because everyone starts getting a bit squeamish. And so you end mm. up with a very thin slither of support on the, not, I'm not going to say far right, but much further to the right. And you lose the sort of centre-right base that you might have had before. Yeah, I, I agree. And it just doesn't seem to reflect... I mean, there are plenty of problems with Britain. You can talk about our failures built housing, our problems with infrastructure. But actually, if you're going to look at things we do well, I'd say multiculturalism is probably one of them. I think we have among the highest rates of people of different races marrying each other in the world. There was an interesting survey from King's College London that came out earlier this year where they surveyed, I think, across virtually every country in the world saying would you feel comfortable living next door to someone of a different race and or of a different faith? And by that measure, we were the third most tolerant country in the world, I think after only Sweden and Brazil. In a global context, you know, we're basically getting it as right as it's possible to get. And it seems weird that this thing, which actually is a success story for Britain, is you're moaning about, when there is obviously a lot of stuff that in a global context we are getting wrong, like building houses and, you know, managing to get a train line anywhere useful. So it just seems like a weird focus. Yeah, and, it, and, and, and as lots of people pointed out, that her speech this week was probably as much about uh, a future leadership bid mm. yes. than any yeah. logical plan to, to rethink policies. Something to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, talk, let's move on to talk about the radio. Uh, apparently, researchers from the University of Brighton and the University of Sussex have studied viewing habits of 21,000 people over three months. Amongst other things, they found that those that listen to a lot of radio were found to have more trust in people and greater overall well-being and life satisfaction. So the very act of listening to this could be good for you. 
That's why people need to hear about you bashing away at your column, James. Yeah. It's it's, it's, nothing is more nourishing than listening to that. Yeah, that's do, right. Do you agree, India? Yes, I do. I have the radio on most of the time, and I find it. Um, I love it. I love radio. I love radio more than actually. Is that true? Do I love radio more than TV? Easily as much as TV, possibly slightly more. Um, I like everything about it, particularly your program. Well, that's quite right. Do you know what? Actually, the truth is, I don't really like speech radio. I mean, obviously, I listen to it more of it now because I'm doing it. But uh, I'm a big fan of music radio. I have the radio on all the time, just, you know, in the background. Does it say, this research, does it specify whether they're talking about speech radio that's or music point. radio? Is it just having... Because it's the old thing of, like, putting the radio on for the dog, isn't it, before you leave? Is yeah. it just the act of having burbling in the corner? It's a good... Um, it's a good... I, I don't know is the answer. Mm. Yeah. What do you think, James? Do you like the radio? Yeah, well, I'm more of a podcast person than a, oh, than a radio God, person. God, you're so young. But is it is it that different? <laughs> I think uh, I think it's just nice to have voices in the background. I think it's kind of comforting, and I can obviously see why it cheers you up, because I, my mood has always improved. Do you tune in and out of the podcast, or do you kind of listen? Because I find if I listen to podcasts, I have to concentrate on the podcast. I can't really kind of multitask. I can't be writing something with a podcast on in the background, but I can write with the radio. I wouldn't, I wouldn't write or try and work with a podcast on the background, but I wouldn't necessarily always listen to it. I think a lot of podcasts are kind of atmospheric burbling, so I'll do it while I'm, <laughs> you know, making my dinner. And I won't always be concentrating on absolutely every single thing they're saying, but the kind of voices are comforting, and I think that's nice. Mm. I've recently, I haven't done it probably really before, but tried, tried an audio book. And I, fi- I find it's quite hard work concentrating. I, I find that I've just drift mm. off a little bit. you really have to follow the story or the argument or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Whereas a podcast, just people chatting and you can yeah. take it or leave it. And, then... yeah. um, and it's partly because I need to try and get a book. I need to try and read a book because I'm interviewing uh, Bernie Taupin uh, in a oh. couple of weeks at Cheltenham. And oh God, I was never going to get around to reading it. So I thought, well, I'll download the thing. And... Uh, I could do like a couple of chapters of driving the car and then I suddenly realised I've just drifted off. And you have to go all the way back. Thinking, yeah, and then it's, you know, and then before you know it... And then it's quite hard to find to find your way back to exactly where you where lost you concentration. Lost. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Slightly tuned out. Uh, but anyway, the book is very good. It's not a criticism of the book, but I think it, you have to you have to really be listening in a way that it turns out you're not if you're listening to the radio. I think you're right. Yeah, I mean, some people... Apps, my mum just based just non-stop audiobooks, but I don't know how she does it. I just... I would not concentrate like that. It's Matt Johnny on Tarjani. I'm not saying it's a quiet news day, but the BBC News Channel currently has a, a sort of breaking news ticker saying, lost school jumper found on roof after 20 years. That's on the, the national broadcasters. They found an old jumper on a flat roof. Well, more on that as we get it. Uh, Indian Night and James Marriott is still here. Now, James, you wrote in your column uh, this week, uh, you were talking about conversation. And how there's basically a lot of it about, and particularly in podcasts, you spend a lot of time uh, listening to. But then you, then you wrote uh, about how conversation can be artful. And you said, a few conversations in my life have left me elated. The feeling you get after hearing a thrilling piece of music or watching a great film. Is this, is this all just at 10.30 on a Friday Yeah, morning? I was talking yeah, only about you. Yeah. I thought you'd pick that reference up. Yeah, I, I leapt on that. I leapt on that. <laughs> um, uh, well... Uh, we thought we'd get some try to try to discuss the value of a good conversation, how to get better at it. Faye Short is a psychologist and professor in the School of Human and Behavioural Sciences at Bangor University. Hi, Faye. Hello there. So go on, then give us some top tips. How do, how do we make good conversation, or what should we avoid doing uh, so we don't make bad conversation? Well, I think it depends on what you want to get out of the conversation. If you want to 
connect to people, if you want to be making a, a real link with another person, then to me, the absolute key to a good conversation is actually listening. It's not necessarily what you say about yourself. It's how you listen to other people. And active listening isn't just sitting there in silence. It's actually more about the questions you ask, how you actually engage with what they're telling you. The reality is that most of us like to talk about ourselves. <laughs> and when we talk to people, we tend to talk a lot about ourselves and don't necessarily listen to other people all that much. The more we do of that, the more we can actually learn about them and connect. And is that, so is the way of sort of tricking uh, uh, a conversation is to, to self-consciously ask more questions of the other person? I like your use of the word tricking, like I'm trying to trick somebody into thinking I'm a good conversationalist. Um, I think it's more that once you start listening to people, you realise that they're actually really interesting and then you want to listen more. So you stop. You might start by doing it really purposefully and intending to focus on someone else. And you might have to actually train yourself to do that a little bit more. But once you get into it, you probably find that you're just really fascinated by other people. Other people are amazing. Even when they have stories about lost jumpers on roofs, they're actually really interesting. And the more you realise that, the more you want to hear from them and the more they want to then talk to you. I don't think everyone is really interesting. I think there were some really boring people who I'd not like to concentrate on listening to. I know, but what do you do? Well, well, Faith, that's a good point. What do you do when you find yourself trapped with someone who is a, you know, a conversational cul-de-sac? Well, I'd be interested to know who you think is really, really boring. I mean, can you admit that on the Ther radio? Theresa May. Really hard work. <laughs> really hard work in a conversation. Well, I wonder if you were able to make Theresa May feel a lot more comfortable conversing with you, maybe she would open up more and oh, disclose something a bit more interesting. Oh, so it's my fault, Faye. Um, <laughs> India, India, how do you approach somebody who's, who's difficult to talk to? Well, if I have the energy, see, quite often I find I'm not interested. In, I mean, I love great conversations and I agree with James, they can be exhilarating almost, but sometimes... I can't quite be bothered. Like if you're sitting next to somebody at dinner and you think, mm, this person isn't saying anything terribly interesting and I'm never, ever going to see them again in my for the rest of my life. This is it. These two hours are the only time I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet them. Then I'm not particularly interested in revealing my own sparkling conversational skills. But otherwise, I think um, everybody basically likes being interviewed. Everybody, as, um, <laughs> as, as your guest was just saying, everybody finds themselves fascinating. So if you're really, really stuck, just kind of do a light interview and they're delighted to be talking to you and remember you as a very charming person even though it's been a very one-sided conversation and all that's happened is that they've talked about themselves which has made them very happy. Faye, is there a great question that never fails to ignite a conversation? I think a great question is probably trying to find out what somebody's interested in and ask them about that. That's when people really light up and it can be any topic in the world. You know, somebody could be talking about trains or jumpers or a TV show, but when they start talking about something they're really interested in, that's when you start to get somebody just lighting up. And actually you can learn an awful lot from that. But I go back to my first comment, which was, it depends what you want out of the conversation. Because yeah. you're absolutely right. If you're sat next to someone and you're not actually that interested, then it might be that you don't particularly want to explore what's interesting to them. <laughs> but then you also don't want them to come away from the conversation thinking you're you're dreadful. That's the 
you know. <laughs> the worst well, com- the worst conversation is this, oh, how are you? Yeah, well, you, yeah, well, very well. Mm. So how are things? Very good. Very good. You, yeah, no, very yeah, well. Yeah, although I wonder if the worst conversation is, tell me about the thing that you're really, really interested in, and then they say something like, oh, well, I really love train spotting, or, you know, let me tell you I about my model railway, and then you go, oh, God, I really, now I have to listen to this person's <laughs> interest, which doesn't <laughs> interest me. But if the point is, if they're, if they're really into it, excited... That could be worse. Yeah. That could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm afraid I don't agree, because when they're really excited and they start telling you, that, that rubs off on you. You start getting excited with them. If somebody's sharing something that they're really passionate about and they've got all of this information, actually, I find that really in- inspiring and, and I get what really if they're, they're excited what, about. What if they're really passionate about... I don't know, copper piping. Indian Night and James Merritt then. Of course, you can read them both in The Times and The Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's 30 years since Back to Basics. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Today we go back 30 years. Back to life, back to reality. Back to life, back to reality. Back to life, back to reality. The old values, neighbourliness. Decency, courtesy, they're still alive. They're still the best of Britain. They haven't changed. And yet somehow people feel embarrassed by them. Madam President, we shouldn't be. It is time to return to those old core values. Time to get back to basics, to self-discipline and respect for the law, to consideration for others, to accepting responsibility for yourself and your family and not shuffling off on other people and the state. On October the 8th, 1993, John Major used his party conference speech to issue that rallying cry for nostalgia. The so-called back-to-basic speech was designed to draw a line under a run of financial, ethical and sex scandals 
economic turmoil and political infighting, which have beset the Conservative government just 18 months after securing a shock election win. I'm absolutely delighted with the outcome of the general election. Uh, may I say, firstly, that I feel deeply honoured to have been given the opportunity of continuing the work I've started in the last 16 months. It's been an exhilarating 16 months, and it is the most enormous privilege to have the opportunity of serving as Prime Minister. Since that moment of triumph followed only months of pain. There was Black Wednesday in September 1992. Today has been an extremely difficult and turbulent day. Massive speculative flows continue to disrupt the functioning of exchange rate mechanism. The government has concluded that Britain's best interests are served by suspending our membership of the exchange rate mechanism. That was the Chancellor, the then Chancellor, Norman Lamont, on Black Wednesday. Almost simultaneously, David Mellor, his heritage minister, John Major's heritage minister, faced a barrage of stories about his affair with the actress Antonia de Sancha and allegations about who had paid for a holiday. In May 1993, Michael Mates resigned over his links with a fugitive businessman, Asil Nadir, who had fled to Cyprus rather than face questions over a fraud investigation. Mates had famously given Nadir a watch with the inscription, Don't let the buggers get you down. So in that speech, the party conference speech in October 1993, John Major urged a return to traditional Tory values to go back to basics. But the drip, drip, drip of controversy just kept on coming. In the autumn of 1993, there were a run of stories about the Transport Minister, Steve Norris, including the revelation that he had five ministers. At Christmas 1993, Tim Yeo, an outspoken supporter of the Institute of Marriage, quit as an Environment Minister after it emerged he'd started an affair with a Tory councillor, Julia Stent, at the Tory conference the year before and had a child with her. David Ashby, Tory MP for Leicestershire North West, was revealed to have shared a bed in a French hotel with a man who was not his wife. In January 1994, Alan Duncan quit as a ministerial bag carrier over buying a council house on the cheap. Then Gary Waller was revealed to have fathered a child with another MP's secretary. Stephen Milligan, the Conservative MP for Eastleigh, was found dead at home, naked but for a pair of stockings and suspenders, with electrical flex tied round his neck and an orange in his mouth. Then Harley Booth, the 47-year-old married MP for Finchley, resigned as a parliamentary private secretary over revelations of a kissing and cuddling relationship with a 22-year-old researcher. And they just kept on coming. In March that year, Michael Brown, the Tory MP for Brigham Cleethorpes, resigned as a whip after going on holiday with a 20-year-old man under the then age of consent of 21 for same-sex relationships. After all that sex, there was money too. Along came the cash for questions scandal. Four Tory MPs, David Trudinick, Neil Hamilton... Graham Riddick and Tim Smith were accused of offering to ask questions in the Commons in return for money. In February 1995, Alan Stewart resigned as a junior Scottish minister after waving a pickaxe at a group of protesters. His affair emerged later. In March 1995, Robert Hughes resigned as a transport minister over his affair. In April, Richard Spring quit as a ministerial bag carrier over a three-in-a-bed sex romp. 
That same month, Jonathan Aitken was Chief Secretary to the Treasury, accused of doing deals with the Saudi Saudi Arabian princes. He sued the Guardian and World in Action, vowing... If it now falls to me to start a fight to cut out the cancer of bent and twisted journalism in our country with the simple sword of truth and the trusty shield of traditional British fair play, so be it. He was later found to have lied in court and ended up in prison. On and on it went into 1997. The married father of two, Jerry Hayes, Conservative MP for Harlow, was revealed to be having an affair with another man. Piers Merchant, the married MP for Beckenham, was caught having an affair with a Soho nightclub waitress and later a parliamentary researcher. The drip drip really did become a torrent. Well, the man tasked with trying to clear all that up was Howell James. John Major brought him in in November 1994 as the Prime Minister's political secretary. Howell James remembers the back to basics speech well. It was the 93 party conference Mm. and he wanted to get the conference back to sort of kitchen table issues. You know, our schools, education, crime, law and order, um, housing. You know, these are the things the Conservative government should be worrying about and getting right. And he wanted to make a speech that said we need to get back to, you know, basics on these, these big issues that concern the public. Let's stop disappearing up our fundamental, you know, worrying about the things that Westminster can obsess about. And let's start thinking about the things where, where the electorate are really concerned about how it affects their own home life and their families. That's what the speech was intended to be, as I understood it. What happened was it was spun, um, and I think it was spun, you know, I, I, I don't think there was malevolence here, but I think there was a sort of, there was an appetite to turn it into something it wasn't quite, which is we're going to be the party of family values, we're going to be, you know, back to basics in terms of good behaviour, high moral standards and all of this stuff. Very dangerous territory, as every politician uh, subsequently has discovered. And it was that interpretation of the speech, more than the speech itself, that then, of course, did come back to haunt him because we had this litany of MPs I mean, it was doing co- the most extraordinary thing. And it was quite extraordinary. And I, yeah. I went back and I thought, because is it a bit like, you know, I don't know, sometimes you think, oh, there was a lot of that happened in politics and you go back and it happened twice, but it felt like a lot. The list of, yeah. he was having an affair, he was... Yeah. Taking yeah. money, yeah. he was having left an affair. Left his wife for a man. He was left three his, you affairs, know, had, had three an illegitimate kid. All of that, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, um, and yeah. so at that point... And, that, and it kept going and it just right kept up going. until the first fortnight of the 97 election where various things popped out uh, in, in the tabloid press. And literally, I remember John Major turning to me and looking at me and said, I mean, is this is this real? Are these, is this, are these people really doing this? What is going on out there? You know, I, he just shook his head in despair. Um, and in terms of his... His approach to the job, the characterization that he obsessively read all of the media and it and it sort of weighed heavily on him. You know, the different prime ministers take a different approach to the media and what people are saying about him. Is that is that a fair assess- sort of characterization? It is, and we did our level best to try and stop <laughs> it. There, he, 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 he did. Early mornings were, you know, a, a, a busy time in the prime minister's flat because the boxes, he'd get up very early and do the boxes if he hadn't done the, the red boxes. The red boxes, boxes yeah. full of parliamentary, full of papers from the, the private office and from the political office, you know, speeches to approve, agendas to approve, you know, travel trips to agree, you know, schedule all sorts of stuff, policy papers. 
and you wanted to rescue your papers from the box, obviously. And John Major liked to talk about what was in the box. So too often he would put, please refer at the top of the paper. And you'd you'd go up there and you'd want to refer immediately because then you wanted, you know, you wanted to know what to do. You know, yeah. was, am I going ahead with this, you know, this visit to wherever? And are we going to do these different visits? And if we are, then we have to set a whole lot of things in train to get the programme agreed and to go out and then deliver it. So... You wanted him to agree this, so we'd go up there first thing, and that would be the moment where you'd sort of try and capture him to go through what the policy issues were and what you know the the, the program was, and that's where you would get the sort of the raw, unexpurgated John Major about you know his his thoughts for the day and what he hoped was going to happen or not, and uh, as you say, even at that point, at like seven. 30 in the morning, there were times where he said, have you seen what they've said about me in X or Y? And I go, uh, no, promise I haven't had a second to look at those yet. And, you know, he would be, you know, he would rifle through the papers. He'd even rifle through the weekly magazine, so the spec or the uh, New Statesman to find, you know, he'd spot stuff. He had just an unhearing nose. He'd find it. You know, the first edition of The Standard would come in. But bear in mind, we were living in a different age. Yeah. This was his version of Twitter obsession. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, um, you know. As soon as the paper came in, the Evening Standard came in. He'd walk towards it in the hallway at number ten and leaf through it. And he would always walk into the private office and look at CFAX. CFAX. Who remembers CFAX? <laughs> you know, the, the CFAX was sort of imprinted on the screen this, of the television. Was this wanted to know what was going on in the world, or wanted to know Both. what the world was saying about him. Both. Yeah. Both. He wasn't self-absorbed in that way, but he he was a sort of one-man polling machine. You know, I'd watch him going around receptions, you know, uh, and and talking to people and saying, "Did you see the news tonight?" What what? And he'd be testing them for what they remembered or what messages came over most powerfully to them. And you know, he was always very interested in people's sort of reaction to it. And he he would listen. He would listen. It's a good quality yeah, of a politician. Yeah, yeah. I, I I commend it. Howell James, political secretary to John Major from 1994 until the election in 1997. Well, two people who were there reporting on uh, on all of that were uh, Eleanor Goodman, who's political editor of the Channel 4 News at the time. Hi, Eleanor. Hi. And Phil Webster, former political editor of Good. the Times. Hi, Phil. Good morning. So, um, uh, Phil, take us back then to uh, October 1993. Um from what I've seen, I've watched most of the speech back, actually. John Major seemed in quite quite good fettle. He thought it was, you know, and at the end he thanked the, the party members for their loyalty and so on. Um, it, what, how did the speech land at the time? Well, uh, Howell James was quite accurate there in suggesting that the way it got reported in the end was not quite what uh, John Major had expected, I think. It was meant to be a an appeal for a return to... Uh, old-fashioned values but it was spun and I remember us all grabbing um, John Major's briefer after the speech and he allowing himself to agree with us that it could well have related to some of the misdemeanors misbehavior that was going on at the time involving Tory MPs so it very quickly became a disaster for John Major it wasn't portrayed in the way I don't think he intended it to be portrayed, but it suddenly became a speech about Major telling his MPs to behave, stop having affairs, this, that and the other. 
Um, so it, it landed badly for him, and um, and uh, it, it he should really have realised that making a speech like that, with so many of those stories already out there, the ones you've enumerated this morning, there was little chance that it was going to be interpreted in any other way. There was a line in the speech at the end, of course, about family values. So there was enough. And his briefer was rather enthusiastic in, in, in telling us what we wanted to hear, that, that this was all about telling, um, telling Tory MPs to get their act together. And when I was sort of set out looking at this, I, 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 I sort of had in mind that actually it wasn't going to be as bad as we remembered that, you know, actually when people talk about, you know, the, the scandals which Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson's uh, MPs have had, it always feels like there were actually more than there were. When I actually went back and looked at the full list and the length of time it took me to read <laughs> them all out, it was, what do you think was behind that? Was it just the arrogance of, uh, you know, having been in power for so long? Was it that, that, that actually this is always, this had always gone on in Westminster, people turned a blind eye to it and suddenly there was a market for it in the, in the papers and, uh, and so on. What, what was going on in the Tory party where everyone seemed to be in someone else's bed? Well, talking to somebody who was in the Whip's office at the time, I think his, his view was that it had always gone on. Uh, I think one of the problems was that the person who actually wrote the, street, the speech, who, as I understand it, was someone called Nick True, who went on to do great things in the Lords for the Tory party, and the person who span it, Tim Collins, who went on to be um, a, a, a minister. Both of them had a slightly naive view of life, uh, and they didn't really realise what they were doing. But the extraordinary thing is that John Major didn't, because at the time, of course, he had finished an affair he himself had had with uh, Edwina Curry. And it is said that every Sunday night when the Sunday papers were about to land uh, on the press officer's desk, he would ring up and say, is anything in them? Like a man who thought, my God, they might have got a hold of that. So it's almost as if, he read the speech without take, without really absorbing it, which defies, uh, you know, you can't imagine he really did do that. Uh, I think it was partly that we in the press were determined to um, expose it all, but also in terms of the more serious things about the allegations of co corruption and abusing their positions as MPs, that was a symptom of the Tory party having been in in office too long. And certainly the, the way it played was to reinforce the idea, as Major says in his biography, autobiography, that the Tories had been in office too long and become casual with power, which of course is something that Rishi has to be very aware of. And I suppose actually, um, uh, Phil, there's that sort of element of if you're on the if, if if the public perception is you're on the downward slide is that sort of thing that you know when you're on the up everything you touch turns to gold and when you're on the way down everything you you touch <laughs> turns to something much worse. And they, actually, you know, when the new Labour government came in, there were affairs and allegations and sleaze, but because they were sort of riding high, it doesn't become the sort of defining narrative. Whereas you know, every every Tory MP who looked at someone who wasn't his wife became front pension news precisely because it fitted that narrative. Yeah, it was a government on the way out. There was great surprise, of course, when Major won the 92 election. It, it hadn't been expected until right to the last moment. There was a, the polls changed very late on. Um, 
he'd been expected to lose that election. And the moment he won it, he was in trouble with, with Europe. Uh, the the, Euro, the anti-Europeans in his party were on the rampage immediately over the Maastricht Treaty. And then this string of um, affairs, some of them quite amazing, you know, the wife complaining that a that, that her husband MP had run off with another man and he admitting that uh, he had slept once with a with a man at a, after a rugby do, but that he hadn't been unfaithful to his wife. All that kind of madness was going on and it was redolent of a party really on the slide. Ellen is right, of course. I mean, John Major couldn't really, he, he couldn't be sure that the revelations that were, come, were, were to come in 2001 from Edwina Curry, he could never be sure that they weren't coming along before then. And of course, if she had chosen that time to make the revelation she made in 2001 through her diaries and also through the Times, of course, um, it might have finished him on the spot. And I think she's, she has said that herself since. But no, it was a... It was a it was a dying government, and uh, you're right. If th those things happened under under Labour in the early years, they didn't get as much prominence. But I suppose everybody was out to knock that government at the time, and and the the MPs and their behaviour. Of course, we had the cash for questions as well at the end of it. MPs being paid to raise to raise questions. It was astonishing. Three MPs admitting to that. Um, they were on the way out, and uh, and they were out for a long, long time. And so, are we wrong to draw parallels with today, uh, um, Eleanor? I mean, actually, we have seen, I mean, but I don't think in terms of volume, we've seen quite the same, <laughs> same level of scale. No, if you take, if you go take the, the um, duration of this parliament so far, there may not have been the volume, but in terms of the depth of the allegations, i.e. that you have a prime minister who um, is alleged to have consistently lied, that is far more serious than being caught in bed with another man, isn't it? Um, so, but I think that it, what is what is the same and what is worrying for Rishi is, as I say, the whole idea of this being the end of a era that it's time for a change. Even if you're not particularly enthusiastic about Labour, well, they, you might as well have a change. That that is the parallel to draw. And, and in a way, when I listened to Rishi's speech last week uh, on on the environment, I could sort of feel an echo of back to basics insofar as he was trying to make a connection with the electorate and say we care about the things you care about we're not interested in woke issues whereas in a way john major was saying rejecting political correctness there was a similarity there but i don't think there was the great big uh, danger in it i.e a, a peg in which to hang all future allegations i would have thought all political speeches are now combed for those kind of pitfalls um, and again it's a sign of perhaps how badly served John Major was that that um, he it was fun in the way it was I mean I remember thinking at the time we all rushed downstairs as Phil said in the ballroom at Blackpool and listened to this young man spinning it and you sort of you could see this these stories being written on everyone's faces you just wow was he really saying that and you knew that that wasn't really what John Major had meant but you knew you couldn't as a journalist ignore it because if you did ignore it it would look as if you'd missed the story so there was this sort of journalistic dilemma as to whether you went, went with what John Major had wanted to, was trying to say or what could be extracted from it and I'm afraid we all went with what could be extracted it 
interesting, <laughs> actually. I was looking at some front pages, and the Guardian played it fairly neutrally. Uh, it took a bit of time, I suspect, for the likes of the Sun and the, the Mail, and I'm sure Phil, to um, pick it up that way for it to really run. And then you couldn't stop it. It was like a hair going round and round and round. I mean, with actually, all of us yapping after it. You you talked about um, the, the Rishi Sunak not, not making a hostage to fortune that way. I mean, actually, when all the Boris Johnson stuff was sort of all blowing up, I mean, the fact that he stood outside Downing Street when he became Prime Minister and said, this government will have integrity, professionalism as an accountability at every level... That came dangerously close to being a, a, a thing. But I, you, you wonder actually during an election campaign whether or not Labour might might dust that off. Um, Phil, your your assessment of the parallels with today, the what happens in the, the apparent dying days of a government when the opposition are, are well ahead in the polls? Well, yes, we are in that, precisely that position. I would say that the Rishi Sunak has probably started his... His, if you like, his last campaign to save it for the Tories a bit earlier than uh, the Tories did back in 96, 97. It's obvious that Sunak's going to have a, you know, if let's say the election is going to be next May, he's going to have several months of policy announcements. Uh, there is a, the, the parallel is obviously there. They've, they, this government has been in 13 years and similarly, uh, you know, it was a similar length of time back then. It was going to, coming up for 18 years in 97. And there comes a point in every political cycle when the voters have just had enough. Certainly under Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, it was obvious by the polls, from the polls, that the voters had had enough and were ready to change. It appears not to be changing. He's He's making a... He's making a pretty strong fist of it in terms of tearing up quite a lot of the policies that his predecessors brought in, net zero, other things. Um, but whether it will be enough, it wasn't enough. Um, back to basics was never going to be enough back then in 96, 97. And one doubts very much at the moment whether net zero and the weakening of net zero is going to be enough now, but we will see. But it's interesting, isn't it? We wouldn't have remembered that speech at conference 30 years ago. I mean, remind me of a speech that was made 31 years ago or 29 years ago. It's only because of the line of facts of basics that it's become immortalised. It's, yeah. it's strange, isn't it? I'm interested that Phil says next May for an election. Can we just pick him up on that? Yeah, I, I, don't, well, I, I don't fully disagree. I think it could have been... My, my, in the great 97-92 debate, I think it's 74 I think we could. I think he could go early, and then uh, Labour might fall short of a majority, and then uh, and then we'll have to have another election. Yeah, I think May is a possibility. A, you get them out on the same day as the local elections, but I think it's also the London mayoral election, and and there the whole issue of the environment uh, could be could be used to the Conservatives' advantage. Uh, we saw what happened in in Uxbridge over Ulez. And would it be an opportunity for the Tories to present themselves as the motorist friend? I don't know. It just strikes me that a government hanging on to the death, uh, it, there's nothing to gain in that at all. It hasn't worked before. What's the point in carrying on till January 2025? Yeah, yeah. You're going to take a What's hammering. the point in going early when you look at Theresa May? And that's all we've got time for on today's episode. Get in touch with all the usual ways. You can email me, matt at times.radio. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. Mm-hmm. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.